If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. While you're turning there, I wonder how many of you saw the Orion launch on Friday. Anybody watch that? See the the YouTube of it later, maybe? You know, NASA says that Orion is built to take humans farther than they've ever gone before. More powerful than any rocket ever built, it will be capable of sending humans to deep space destinations such as an asteroid and eventually Mars. You know, as far as human achievement goes, this is amazing. Really, even incomprehensible for almost the entirety of human history up until the last century. But even with this remarkable achievement, maybe the pinnacle of human achievement, I don't know, but with it, we will only access a tiny fraction of the universe around us. So... Think about the God who created it at all. By necessity, he is bigger than the universe, of which we only know a fraction. By necessity, he is beyond the universe. So consider how easy it would have been for this God to separate himself from us. How easy it would have been for God to be the hidden God. He would have been perfectly safe. In making that choice, what are we going to do? Go find him? No, after all, with Orion, we're just hoping someday to get to Mars. So it seems to me that the more that God allows us to discover, you know, it is God who is allowing these discoveries, you know, right? He's leaking a little information out to us, little by little, one discovery after the next, one building upon the other, till we arrive at where we are today. We arrive at Ryan. He could have stayed hidden, but the God of this universe makes us, the more we discover, feel smaller and smaller. At least I do. The more we discover, it seems the greater our potential to feel lost in this universe. But the good news is, God does not allow us to be lost. The good news is that God does not allow time nor space to separate us from him, though he could do both. And so the story of the incarnation, the story of the birth of Christ provides a wonderful opportunity for us to ponder this reality that truly, truly, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? Amen. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together. The word of the living God. Beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. Lord, a word, a story that we have heard over and over and over and over again. But Lord, perhaps the most amazing story, not perhaps, definitely the most amazing story that's ever been told. So Father, we pray now that you would teach us from this old, old story. Bless it to our hearts and our lives. As you reveal your truth to us through your word and by the power of your spirit, we pray that you would bring the transformation that needs to come to each of our hearts and lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Every year, Luke chapter 2, verse 19, which we did not read this morning, it is the verse that orients me during the Advent season. If you look there, that verse says that Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary was pondering all of these things in her heart. The word ponder means to throw together in your mind. So all of these things are, are going around in Mary's mind. It means to revolve. So all these things are going around in Mary's mind, but the passage doesn't identify what these things are. But surely from the context in which we find them, these things would have included this last-minute trip to Bethlehem. Surely these things would have included this surreal setting in which Mary finds herself. Of all the ways, of all the places that she probably imagined that her baby would be born, the baby that the angel told her would be the son of the Most High, the baby who had reigned over the house of Jacob, the baby whose kingdom would never, ever end. Of all the ways she imagined this baby to be born, I'm quite sure she never guessed that she would find herself in a dirty public stable surrounded by road-weary, sweaty animals. But there she was. And then shepherds. Shepherds, for goodness sake. Somehow know about her baby's birth. Angels told them and they've come and they've visited and they've left and they've gone telling everybody this amazing story and everybody who hears it is amazed. Surely these must be some of these things that Mary pondered and revolved around in her mind over and over. Because you know what? Listen, if no one else in the world knew it, if no one else truly believed it, If no one truly believes it today, it it, it didn't matter then and it doesn't matter now because Mary knew, Mary knew that the baby that she carried in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Mary knew that the angel Gabriel had spoken truth to her that this child was from God. Mary knew that if no one else did. But what kind of God, she pondered. Everything here must mean something. What does it mean? Everything she's seeing, it, it's here on purpose. What purpose? All of this, all these things, some way reflect the character of God. What is it that God is trying to communicate about himself in this place where Mary finds herself? And so the Advent season is a time of pondering for all of us. You know, we, we rush by this story so quickly, don't we? I mean, most of us have even memorized it. I mean, even Linus, Charlie Brown's friend, can quote this story 
from heart. So we rush by as if we really grasp its meaning. Oh yes, I understand that the God of the universe came to earth in the form of a baby. <laughs> Nothing left to ponder. Yeah, we, we need to ponder. Here's what I would do if I were you, because I'm doing it. Just take one truth during this Advent season. I don't care what it is. One element of the story. The star, the angels, the shepherds, the manger, the cradle. I don't know. But think about it. Ponder it over and over in your mind. Write down, write down everything. Pencil and paper. Everybody know what that is? The thing we used to write on. Pencil and paper. Write down everything you think about. Lord, why is this here? What does this mean? Lord, how does this thing reflect your character? And think about it. Ponder and write and pray and write and ponder and pray and write and write and ponder and pray. Over and over. Don't rush off to the next verse because you have a thousand more to read before the end of the year to finish your Bible reading in a year. Ponder. That's what I want us to do this morning. First, I want us to, to ponder Beth, ponder, ponder Bethlehem. Okay. This is a side thing. We all do this favor for me. I know y'all know where I grew up. For the entirety of my life, I've pronounced it Bethlehem. And I know that I'm going to say Bethlehem all day today instead of Bethlehem. So if I do that, you'll forgive me, right? Bethlehem. We're going to ponder Bethlehem. All right? Why was God determined? Why was God determined that this is the place where Jesus would be born? Well, most probably because God said this is the place where he would be born 700 years before. Micah 5, chapter 2, we heard it this morning. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. But why? Why Bethlehem the least instead of Jerusalem, the greatest? And since God had chosen Bethlehem already, why didn't he just choose a girl that already lived there? Why didn't he choose a girl there from Bethlehem or nearby to be the mother of Jesus? Is there a point to the process of getting Mary from Nazareth, where she lived, to Bethlehem, where Jesus is to be born? You know, if Mary and Joseph took the smoother, easier route, the one most accessible to water, as most certainly they did, If Mary and Joseph took the safer route, which would be to avoid the territory of the Samaritans because they could be attacked, which they very likely did because Mary, nine months pregnant, is not very agile, you know, should an attack come to them. If they took that route, it would have added many more miles to their trip, turning a a trip of 80 or 90 miles into a trip of 120 miles. Nine months pregnant, on foot. Please imagine. How long would that have taken? You figure it out. Would you want to walk 20 miles a day? If you walk 20 miles a day, you'd make it there in six days. That's quite a trip. This is from an op-ed article in the New York Times from July about our own mayor, Joe Riley. A little story about his uh, career. One day in 2000, Riley arrived at his office and told his senior advisor, David Agnew, Maybe I had too much coffee this morning, but I have an idea. The mayor proposed and then organized a five-day, 120-mile march from Charleston to Columbia to urge the removal of the Confederate battle flag that still fluttered over the state house. The walking bloodied and blistered his feet, which he swaddled in bandages 
so he could get to the finish line. Now listen, the point of that story is the feet, not the flag, okay? The feet, not the flag. Here's our mayor, a fit man now, a fit man then. Yet he had bloodied, blistered feet from walking the exact same number of miles that Mary walked, nine months pregnant. So we come back to Mary, and we realize she would have never chosen this trip. Even though the angel Gabriel told her that her child was the son of the Most High God, maybe she never put two and two together, that her child was the child. So Mary, we see, making no attempt to fulfill Scripture. Oh, I've got to get to Bethlehem. She would have never done it. It was not her plan. It was God's plan. And look at what God had to do to bring about his plan. You know, Herod had to get all uppity and show his independence. And that, in turn, made Caesar mad at him. And so Caesar only spared the life of Herod because Herod groveled before him because Herod's friends interceded on his behalf. And so Caesar spared Herod's life, but Herod would be punished. Caesar would show him who was boss. He said, Herod, I require tax from you. And so now Herod is required to, to tax all his people and put this thing in place. And just in time for Mary to get to Bethlehem. Because look, if she went before this time, Oh, Joseph, let's go pay our taxes and come back. Then Jesus would not have been born there in time for the government to certify him. But because Jesus was born at that time, Jesus was counted along with Mary and Joseph and stamped on Jesus was the Roman imperial seal. This one is from the line of David. This one is from the line of David. And so, Scripture is fulfilled, and Caesar himself is the one who said so. This is what makes me laugh about separation of church and state. You know, or at least how most people understand separation of church and state, as if they are two parallel realities, and the two will never, ever touch. God used the state to certify his son. A squabble between these two politicians a government tax to fulfill the word that he spoke a thousand years before about the lineage of the Messiah and 700 years before about the place of his birth. The government certified the birth of the one who would then become the head of the church. You just can't keep God out of government. So sit a while and and ponder the how of Bethlehem, how God and his sovereignty worked to bring all this about. And then we take that awe and amazement at how God accomplished all this in His sovereignty. It's spinning around in our minds and we let that congeal. And we let that form in us faith. We let it form in us faith. To say if God uses all of this quite apart from the knowledge of the participants, Caesar and Herod and Joseph and Mary, What's beyond his ability to use in my life to accomplish his purpose? I don't think anyone in this room is going to find themselves in a situation more difficult than the one Mary was in. Well, yes, as you can see, I'm expecting a child, but but I promise you, I'm a virgin, I promise. The child that I'm carrying, that you see that I'm carrying, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's Mary's uh, lot. And yet her response, even before she knew all that God would do for her, 
was this. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so see, that's the place that God's sovereignty brings all of us to. To this very place. You look at your life. You don't understand. You don't understand why. You don't understand how. You don't see a way out. But faith tells you to say, I am the servant of the sovereign Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. But see, I digress. On the how of Bethlehem, what I really want us to talk about this morning is the why. Why of Bethlehem? Why did God choose this place? Why did God proclaim it to be the place? And why did he divinely orchestrate all this to make it happen? And I keep going back to Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem, even though you remain least among the clans of Judah, nevertheless, you're the one. You're the place. You're the least, but you're the place where the Messiah will be born. Why does God choose the least? Why? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, people of Israel, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. Why did God choose Moses, the stutterer, to be the one to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt? Moses' response, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? And God's response to Moses, I will go with you. Why did God choose Gideon to act as judge over his people? When God called Gideon, Gideon said this to the Lord, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord says... I will be with you. Why did God choose Saul to be the first king of Israel? When Samuel, the prophet, informed Saul of that decision, you know what Saul says? But am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Why did God choose the apostle Paul? By his own admission, he was the least of all God's people. Why did Jesus take the little child and stand the child beside him for all the disciples to see and say, for he who is least among you is the one who is great? Why did God warn his people through the prophet Zechariah? Who dares despise the day of small things? Why did God say of the mustard seed that though it's the tiniest garden seed, that when it's grown, it will grow into a tree big enough for the birds of the air to, to perch in? Why? Over and over. And these are just a few instances. We see God using and choosing the least, the smallest, the weakest. The least, the smallest, the weakest. Say with me. The least, the smallest, the weakest. One more time. The least, the smallest, the weakest. Why? 1 Corinthians 1.26. Maybe this, these are the verses you should ponder. These are good pondering verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. You can turn there if you want. But I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writes, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy, when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. 
God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. No one can ever boast in the presence of God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. See, it isn't about who you are. It isn't about how great you are. It isn't about how good you are ever. It's never about that. It's always about who God is. God's continual use of the least, the smallest, the weakest. His insistence that we don't miss the point that he uses and chooses. The least, the smallest, and the weakest. Demand that our pride finally, though nearly impossible, be broken. That finally we give up our need to self-promote. And what a difficult thing that is. God strips away everything that we boast or brag about. Job, money, position, family, I don't care. God strips it away. He tosses them aside and he says, these things are meaningless as reasons why God came to us. These things are meaningless as reasons why God would span the distance that separates us and come to us. These things are meaningless as reasons why Jesus would choose us. God constantly goes to the bottom of the barrel to demonstrate his point. The least, the smallest, the weakest can become the greatest, the biggest, and the strongest when God is present and when God is at work. Who then would feel the need to separate themselves? Who here? We feel the need to separate themselves from the one who not only uses, but who searches out and handpicks the least, the smallest, and the weakest. Who should give up on themselves? Who should give up on God? Why should you give up on yourself? And don't say you don't, because I know we all at times give up on ourselves. And frustration that will ever change or that will ever be different Why should anyone believe that God will ever give up on them? When you believe that, ponder Bethlehem. The least, the unnoticed, the unqualified, the undeserving of such an honor that the king of glory would be born in its walls. You know, I think of the lengths to which cities of the world go to bring attention to themselves the privilege of hosting the Olympics, the great competition, choose us, choose us, choose us. We'll host, we'll host, we'll host. Tortilla Flat, Arizona doesn't have a chance. It has a post office. It has a voter's precinct. It has a restaurant, a gift shop, a saloon, and a population of six. What chance does it ever have of being chosen? I guess that depends on who's doing the choosing, doesn't it? God made sure we didn't miss the point. God made sure that we had to notice all that he had to do to get Mary to Bethlehem. I think so that we would notice and be sure what he can do for us as well. In the major, 
stable. They tell the same story, send the same message. Don't separate yourself from me. The manger and the stable say, come to me all who are laboring or heavy laden and I will give you rest. Another story. A few weeks ago, I went to West Virginia to visit my mother. Quick trip. First morning there, I opened the newspaper and I read in the obituaries uh, that a woman of significant wealth and social prominence had died. She was a very nice lady. I liked her and I liked many of her family members. So I immediately go to the bedroom to see what I packed on that trip. Oh, no jacket, no tie, not even a pair of khakis. I thought, well, I can't go to the funeral home and see these people looking like this. But I'm really bigger than that, aren't I? No, not so much. I I did not go to the funeral home. Can you believe it? I did not go. I was too embarrassed to go. I didn't want them to ponder about me. Well, I wonder what happened to Craig. He used to dress so nicely. He must have fallen on rough times or something like that. But because of their wealth, because of their social position, I felt unworthy to go looking as I looked. And so I'm so glad that the King of Glory chose a stable and not a palace. Isn't that good news? I don't have to worry about how I'm dressed and you don't have to worry about how you're dressed. And what about the manger? Many people would feel too dirty to pick up a baby from a gilded cradle wrapped in a silk blanket trimmed with gold. So God chose an animal's feeding trough and strips of cloth for his son. Who would feel unworthy to pick up a baby? You know, dressed like that. See, when we ponder these things, it seems that everything that God did was to remove the barriers that would separate people from Him. Everything He did seems to communicate, come near, all can come. Who would feel unqualified to come to to this setting, to this place? And so I ask myself and I ask you, what are we allowing in our lives to separate us from God or to bring distance between us and Him? We need to figure that out because I'll tell you this, anything that separates you from God is from man. Anything that draws you to God, stable, manger, those things are from God. Anything that separates you from God, that's from man. Anything that draws you, that's from God. And so maybe you have mislabeled some circumstance in your life. Maybe you have wrongly affixed the blame for it to God when it belongs to man. And you've allowed that thing or that circumstance to create distance and separation between you and God. Maybe it's sickness, maybe it's suffering, maybe some tragedy. Listen, those things aren't man's do, aren't God's doing. It was man's idea to disobey God. It was man's idea. Man chose to sin. Adam and Eve in the garden were their children. It was their choice. And so the consequences of that human choice belong in the human lap. We don't believe that, do we? But it's true. The consequences of that human choice to sin, they belong in the human lap. And what resulted from that choice? A curse. The ground was cursed with thorns and thistles. Our bodies were cursed with sickness and death. And God is not required. God is not required to right every wrong on earth that sin produced. 
And so if you allow those things to separate you from God or distance you from Him, you do so at your own expense and really at your own misery, whatever that circumstance is. And I'm not making light of it. There are people with with tragedy and suffering in their lives. I'm not making light of that. If you rightly believe that God in His sovereignty could have righted that wrong and He could do it, but that God has chosen not to, then believe this as well. God is going to use that in your life for some purpose that you don't understand at this time. But don't let it distance you from Him. Use it instead as an opportunity to draw near the One who wants to draw near to you. He sent His Son to open the way to Him, to open the way to heaven, to open the way to home for all of us who believe far as the curse is found. God seeks to bring near, not separate. And surely that's what we see when we ponder this scene before us. God, a baby, born in a stable, in the least village, lying in a manger? What could be off-putting about that? What could be intimidating about that? Who can't come to a baby? Who can't come to a manger? Who can't come to a stable? Who can't come to a little village like Bethlehem? You don't even have to be street-wise. You don't have to worry about parking. The scene says, come near. And the only ones who are excluded or those who exclude themselves, those who think they're too good to enter a stable, those who are repulsed by its sights and its smells, but worse, they're repulsed that this is the kind of king that we must have, one that would lower himself to such a degree. This is not one of our station. Those are the ones who point the haughty finger and spew out with disgust. Just look at him. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And so it will always be, always be with Jesus, right up until the end, from a dirty, smelly stable to a rugged, repulsive cross. Consistency in the life of Christ. But at least in the manger, he had the dignity to wrap some cloths around him instead of hanging naked. See, the proud will never be drawn to this. The proud will never be drawn to this. So don't let your pride keep you from Jesus. You need Him. And don't let anger distance you from Jesus. You need Him. And don't let feelings of hopelessness or unworthiness or it's no use, Lord, keep you from Him. See, on this silent night, This one holy night before man has an opportunity to mess things up, here lies the King of glory accessible to all. And though Jesus is a king, no secret service there to block the way, to prohibit entrance, to check credentials, not on this night and not at this manger. Only free and open access, free and open access to the King of glory. Because it is true that nothing, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we do thank you for an opportunity to look at your word this morning. So much good news found in it. So many messages that you communicate to us, Lord, even in unspoken ways. Lord, what a beautiful message and what a message of relief it is for us to to ponder the manger, the stable, to ponder Bethlehem and to think, Lord, of what you used and who you chose to accomplish your will and the message that you are sending to us. Lord, who can't come to you? The way to you is open by faith to anyone who will believe this incredible story of God coming to earth, dying on a cross, rising again. Father, I pray that we will believe the story. Because we believe the story, Lord, we will also believe that our place is near you, not separated from you. So, Lord, help us to remove the things that separate. Sin, Lord, that we just don't want to think about or confess. Sin, Lord, that makes us think, oh, I I can't go to the Lord, not today. Let a few days pass first. Don't let us fall for that lie. Help us to confess that sin so that the way is clear between us. Lord, there's anger in our lives and disappointment, and there's anger and disappointment almost all of, of, of our lives. Lord, help us not to blame you and say, what a bad hand you've dealt me, Lord. Instead, Lord, let us look at those things in our lives that you have allowed in your sovereignty and for your glory. Lord, help us to use those things to draw near to you. That we would hold hands with you and walk through even those most difficult and frightening circumstances. Lord, I pray that because you've opened the way, because you've made the way, that we would not block it. We thank you, Lord, that nothing can come between us and you. Nothing can separate us from your love that you have for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.